Please take a Bible, if you will, and turn to uh, the letter of 1 Timothy. It's on page 992 in those Bibles in the pews. This morning I'm going to bring uh, one message uh, for today and today only on uh, officer nominations and what the Bible says about the qualifications for elders and deacons. We are instructed as pastors in our denomination to to preach a sermon on such during the nomination process, and you'll see by those forms in the pew racks, the hymnal racks, that for the month of May is when we receive nominations. So I hope that you will take those if you're a church member and give that prayerful consideration. Some of this passage, I believe, is printed there in uh, that little folder. 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's word. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Then keep your finger there, if you will, on that passage and go over to toward the end of the Bible just a little bit to the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 17, page 1010. Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It may surprise you that in the New Testament there is more instruction regarding church officers, elders, deacons, than any other important church subjects, more than baptism, more than the Lord's Supper, more than observing the Lord's Day, more than spiritual gifts. There is more teaching in the New Testament about the qualifications for elder and deacon than about any other aspect of biblical leadership. I wanted to read this verse from Hebrews before we focus on the passage in 1 Timothy because it's very unusual. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. What is this submission? What is it supposed to look like? This is not blind obedience or some kind of 
cult-like mentality where the church leaders dictate the very details of your life. What this is calling for is a submissive, respectful spirit. And then he gives two reasons why we should do this, why we should have such a spirit of obedience and submission to the leaders. First is, they keep watch over your soul. God has created each of us here, obviously with a body, but even more importantly, with a soul. And I say more importantly because whereas your body will one day die, unless Christ comes again first, your soul is eternal. Your soul will never die. And Jesus said nothing compares in value to your soul. He asked the rhetorical question in Matthew 16. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Obviously, we put most of our attention on our bodies. Uh, Your face, your figure, your weight, your health. Think how much of your day probably is consumed with tending to your body. You wash it. You feed it. You cool it. You heat it. You insure it. You medicate it. You clothe it. You rest it. You protect it. You exercise it. You vaccinate it. And on and on and on. Your body is important. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells within us as believers. But the Lord views your soul as more important than your body. And so he has appointed leaders in the church to watch over your soul. It shows how much value there is. If you go in a real nice museum, a large museum, and there are various displays, and depending on how they have it arranged, you can go through. But if you see a room and there's a guard standing there, you know you've hit pay dirt. That's what I want to walk in because something very, very valuable is in there because they've, they've posted a guard to make sure that it all remains the way it's supposed to. You know what God has done? Your soul is so valued that he has posted sentinels. He has posted guards to watch over your soul. And for that first reason, the writer of Hebrews says, be respectful, submit, obey your leaders. The second reason we are to do that, he gives, is because they must give an account. The writer James writes, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a spiritual principle that increased responsibility means increased accountability. While all Christians will be at the judgment, those who are leaders, teachers of God's word in the church will undergo a stricter judgment. I don't know exactly what that means. And I don't think it's good news as one who teaches and leads. It's, it's pretty daunting and overpowering at times. So we have to take this very, very seriously. And he says for that reason, they should be um, esteemed. They should be respected. They should be obeyed as those who watch over your soul and they must give an account. Now, let's go back to the 1 Timothy passage. Hopefully you still have that there, 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is one of three passages in the New Testament that spells out some of the character qualifications that should be present in an elder or a deacon. Uh, But I want to focus just on on this particular one and kind of combine them together. But I want you to notice the term used here at the very beginning. Now remember... uh, 
Reverend James Baird was here last Sunday and preached. He preached from the book of Ephesians, and he mentioned that Ephesus is one of the few cities in the New Testament. You, you can still go there and see a lot of the ancient buildings that would have been that way in the first century. And Paul spent, the Apostle Paul, a missionary in the first century, spent more time in Ephesus once he had established a church. He stayed there longer than he stayed anywhere else. He stayed three years getting the people established in their faith, getting a church or churches established there in Ephesus and training leaders. Now, Timothy, 1 Timothy is written from Paul to Timothy who is pastoring the church in Ephesus. And we view this pastoral epistle, that's why it's called such, it was Paul writing to a pastor, as instruction on how to do church, for lack of a better term, to train leaders, to appoint leaders, with the importance of preaching, and a variety of other things. All that's in 1 Timothy. And he starts off with a very unusual phrase. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, when I was a little boy, and all the relatives would gather at Thanksgiving or at Christmas, and inevitably the uncles and, and others and aunts, they would say, uh, what do you want to do when you grow up? And if I answered back, well, I want to I wanna be a fireman, or I want to be an astronaut, or I want to be a whatever, a doctor or something, often you would hear from an older person, that's a noble thing. That is a noble calling. I never hear that. I never hear that said today. Maybe y'all say it all the time. But I, now it's, it's like, what do you want to be? Well, I want to be this. Well, you can't do any, make any money doing that. <laughs> well, you can't trust those guys. If you go do that. A noble task. What Paul is saying, if someone aspires to this, if there's an inward call, then that's good. That's good. So the old notion in a church that if somebody wants the office, they shouldn't have it, that's totally opposed to what's said right here at the beginning, that there should be an internal aspiring to it. And he compliments it. Paul's saying this is a good thing. This is a noble task which to aspire. So what does it mean to aspire? It has two basic aspects. There's an, an inward call. There's a sense of seeing the need, the need of people to know Christ, to walk with Christ, to be developed in their faith, to see uh, Christian families function together, to, to help people in need, to, to help the brokenhearted and the downtrodden. There's, there's this seeing as Christ looked at the multitude and he had compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So there'll be that sight that will be in a person, in a man. And then second, there'll be the desire to meet that need. That's a big difference. Some people see it, but they could care less about meeting it. This person says, I want to help. I care for these people. I care for this situation. And so they do not have to be pushed into the position. There'll be a desire to do it. And then that's the one aspect, the inward call that the man will feel. There's the external call of God's people. They would recognize as we go through this list, if God has blessed us, as we go through this list, if you're a member here, you've been here for a while, you should be able to think, that looks like old Joe over there. Oh yeah, this, this description. I know him. He ought to be, he needs to be a shepherd. He needs to be an elder or deacon in this congregation. That's the external call. So internal call, see the need, want to meet the need. External call, other people see it in the person and say you should serve in that capacity. And Paul says such is a noble task. This is a good thing to desire to be 
an officer in the biblical sense of the word, an elder or deacon in the church of Christ. Well, let's look at the qualifications. I think it's been a year or two since we last did this, uh, but I want to kind of lump them together. I won't be exhaustive on any of those. But he begins now in verse 2, and he begins to describe what this, the characteristics should be in a person's life as an elder or deacon. And there are a few words of caution. One, deacons and elders in God's church are different roles. Deacons are not junior elders. They are not elders in training. It is a different role, a role of service. So they serve in different areas. But the qualifications are almost identical. Almost identical. The one different is it says an elder should be apt to teach. But then, right away, he says that a deacon, in verse 9, must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So deacons should be men of the word, of God's word, too. So they're essentially the same in qualifications. The second warning, a word of caution, is we have to be careful not to be perfectionistic in each of these. For example, the very first character that's going to be given is that the man should be above reproach or blameless. Now, if we take that in its literal wooden sense and say, well, this person can have no sin in their life. Okay, none of us are qualified at that point. So we, we have to be realistic and say, is this the movement of the person's life? Not put the bar so high that it's perfectionistic. Third, it's important to remember that each of these characteristics are to be found in all Christians, the entire church, the whole family of God. For example, when it says that a, an officer should not be a drunkard, it's not as though we say, man, I'm glad I'm not an officer. I'll drink all I want. No, this applies to all of us, to, to all of us, but it should be especially true in this person's life. Okay, with that in mind, let's just run through the list rather briefly. First, it says above reproach, this person's life is not marked by any disgrace that would detract from his service in this way. It doesn't mean that the person is fault-free, uh, but free from scandal, free from disgrace. Uh, he has a good reputation, and he deserves the good reputation. It's not necessarily how the man views himself. He may be very self-critical, too critical of himself. And now, beginning with the next quality, is what does it mean to be above reproach? Now he's going to get specific. What does it mean to be above reproach? First, he's a husband of one wife. This one has provoked great discussion through church history. Does this mean that an elder uh, and later a deacon must be married? Can a single person serve in that capacity? Well, we better hope so. Paul was not married. Jesus himself was not married. What's stated here is it's assumed, it's assumed that the man is married. That was generally the case. And that, being married in his marital relationship, he is an example of faithfulness to his wife. The literal phrase there, he is a one-woman man. So he's above reproach in his commitment to his wife. He doesn't have a roving eye. No one accuses him of being flirtatious. He has unquestioned devotion to his wife. Second, or moving on, he's to be temperate and sober-minded. He's not governed by uncontrollable habits. He's not given to wild extremes. Um, he's, he's balanced overall. 
Um, he's probably not known as being overly idealistic nor depressingly pessimistic. He's self-controlled, it goes on. He exercises wise judgment. Um, should a person who's given a frequent outburst of temper in losing control of himself be a church officer? Probably not, because he needs to be self-controlled with his tongue, with his, with his attitude. See, moving on, he needs to be respectable. That means an inner moral excellence. Uh, he's hospitable. Uh, that warrants some explanation. Uh, it doesn't mean he's got a big house. It means he's got a big heart. Literally, it's, he's to be a lover of strangers. He's quick to open himself and, and his home, if possible, to others. He's not afraid to meet new people. I would hope that what would be characteristic of this church is if new people, if you're new here today, that someone who's an elder or deacon, not because they're an elder or deacon, would meet you before you leave, unless you run out the door and don't allow any chance for somebody to do that. Because these people will be hospitable. They, they look to make people feel welcome and comfortable. All Christians are exhorted to practice hospitality. In Romans, we're, we're told to practice hospitality. In 1 Peter 4, we're to offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. But this should be especially true of an elder. He's to be apt to teach, as it says in the King James, or here it says able to teach. Uh, teach the Bible, that's what it what he's talking about. He demonstrates the ability and the willingness to teach. He, he's got an essential knowledge of God's Word. He's able to communicate that others to others. Now, maybe that's more in a smaller group setting. Maybe that's more in one-to-one. Uh, maybe it's not the type of person that can stand before 50 to 100 people and, and teach or preach just really, really effective lessons. But he should possess the ability to explain God's truth which means he's a learner himself. He's a lifelong student of the Bible. And so he should be competent. He should be familiar and able to handle himself with God's Word. If you come to an elder and say, I've got questions about this thing of the Holy Spirit or, or this notion of the Trinity, uh, can you explain this to me? The person, if they can't explain it right then, should be able to say, I'll get back to you, and then they will explain it. They will learn because they know and understand. Uh, so sometimes they can preach. Um, the, the church we moved here from years ago, uh, the, we had a couple of elders in the church, and they were much better preachers than the couple of us that were supposed to be the preachers. And the congregation, I think, enjoyed it. The church would grow when we were out of town. <laughs> now, the elders were excellent. That's why within our denomination, we have a thing called licensure. And so let's say here's a here's a elder in the church and he's a very very effective teacher public teacher and even preacher of the word then it, though that's not his primary calling maybe it's to be a, a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker or something else he is licensed then to preach in pulpits within our denomination in our presbytery uh, moving on he's not a drunkard literally he's he's not one who abuses wine he exercises self-control in this area He's not violent, but gentle. He controls his temper. He's not quarrelsome. This is important because we are to be defenders of the faith. Uh, we are to contend for the faith, so we should know how to debate and argue with a person that's attacking the faith. But that's difference. A quarrelsome person's always looking for an argument. They're just, you know, out to bully people. 
they're, they're kind of angry. But this person will seek essentially to live in harmony with others. He's not a lover of money. He's learned the grace of contentment. You don't question his actions always as though there's some financial angle behind them. Uh, and probably the main reason is because to make money your focus, it's a distraction. And it's a temptation. He must manage his family well. Now, this is the key one. This, this one's big. What Paul does is he starts with the home life, what the Puritans called the little church, and said, how does the man manage his little church before he manages the big church, which is an elder in a, a local congregation? So Paul starts with the home life, the family life, and then extends up to the church life. The man must demonstrate an ability, quote, to manage his own family well. So it assumes this man's married with children. And by the, by the way, the Greek language, the New Testament language, is very specific about a little child and older children. A little child, the word was techna. And so sometimes when in our day, it's hard for us to think because a young boy became a man in his mid-teens in those days, if not younger. They married younger. And so now, if, if, and the reason I say this is because here I have no Christian dads. Their, their son or daughter goes off to college and announces they don't believe any of this stuff. And the man comes and says, I wonder if I should not be an elder anymore. I said, let's talk about this. One is, this says children, children, little children. Uh, how did you manage them at that point? If we're responsible for our grown children always, then I'll be an elder one week and I want the next week. Then I'll be an elder one week and then I want to. Does that make sense? I mean, that's what sometimes it gets down to. So uh, as you read this, he's talking about small children at home. He's a man in control of his family. He's not passive. He's not checked out. He's not delegated the whole family to the wife and said, I'll check in when I get home late at night from being with the boys. The man is not passive. He is engaged with his family. So he'll be a loving leader in the home. He'll give direction and stability and order. So what is this saying about the men who aspire to this office? The home ministry is the priority. The most important evangelism and discipleship that any of us can ever have is with our kids, or with our children. There's no question. That, that is the essence of discipleship. And so if a man is, has not shown that he's willing to engage in that and teach even his own children, Paul is saying he, he's, he's not qualified to lead in the church. Then he goes on and says, not a recent convert. So a man may possess all these characteristics, but still unqualified by the sheer fact that maybe he was just converted six months ago. Um, literally, again, literally here it says, not a neophyte. That's an, a word for a young plant. Uh, so the, the important thing is to let the person grow. Now, here's what's really key. How long was Paul in Ephesus? Remember how many years? Okay, three years, the longest he was any, anywhere. During that time, he led most of those people to Christ. He established leaders. So within three years, there were elders in that church. Now, three years to us sounds like a real short period of time. My point here is that we should not underestimate 
how fast someone can grow in the right environment. We also shouldn't say, well, unless somebody's been a convert for 10 years, we can't even consider them. The important thing is, if it's a brand new convert, Paul is saying, let them get established. He doesn't even say it it will not be because they can't fulfill the, the task. It will be they'll be subject to temptation. And that's where he mentions there that he, lest he fall into the temptation of the devil, pride and conceit were the devil's downfall, and he uses pride to trap others. So the person may be a fantastic leader in the future, but the biblical policy is give the new believer time. Let him grow and mature and develop roots. Last of all, he must have a good reputation with outsiders. Now, if you're reading this and paying attention, at that point, it should be like we just hit a speed bump. Huh? Outsiders? Since when does the, the world have anything to say about the church? Well, right here they do. I mean, Paul hadn't said anything about outsiders, and now he says they, these people must, these men must have a good reputation. We've always been judged by outsiders. More often than not, harshly and overly critically, but Paul's saying, you need to know what they think about this guy. Is the man in question, how's he viewed? How's he viewed in the workplace and in the neighborhood and in the, and his extended family and all of that? Okay. Now, as I mentioned, the ones for elders and deacons are essentially the same. I'm not even going to continue down from eight and following because, in a sense, they're rewording and just reapplying these others. A few observations in the last couple of moments I have. As we read through that list, did you notice how many things it said that elders and deacons are to do? If you're seeing some, I didn't, and you've got a very astute eye. There's almost nothing there about job description. It's all on character, not what they do, but what they are. And so the emphasis is on character. In fact, there's no mention here of special giftedness. There's certainly nothing said about a high IQ uh, or even ability, except able to teach and manage his family well. But here are the three requirements, basically. Able to manage the family well is the first one. And it uses a phrase there that we all ought to remember in verse 5. If he doesn't do that, how does it say in verse 5, he cares for Christ's church? Does the man care about Christ's church? I'm not talking buildings. That's not it at all. Does he care about God's people? Does he care for uh, the flock? Does he care that they are resourced with God's word, that that's provided for them? The, the heart of a true elder deacon is they simply love Christ and they love his church. That's essentially it. Second, so the first requirement, able to manage the family and see that overflow into the church. Two, able to teach and defend the faith. And third, able to provide a model for others to follow. So ministry primarily is modeling. It's modeling. It's an office of exhibiting Christ before the flock and willing to be a visual aid of God working in a life. And it may be a visual aid of failing and let others watch me how I handle it. It may be having a broken heart. It may be getting sick and dying and letting people watch that. And can a Christian die well? It, it may be letting them see total dependence on prayer or 
or uh, a rocky marriage and how you both are trying to submit yourself to God and allowing people to watch that as you submit to Christ's spirit. It may be um, see that you, as a busy person, depend on God's word and study it and know it and rely upon it and trust in those resources. It could be all of that. So when I say it's a ministry of modeling, I don't mean model perfection. Uh, far from it, but model transparency and openness. And the whole intent is multiplication. Uh, we, we, teach, we teach things we know, but we reproduce what we are. <laughs> That's what it boils down to. We reproduce what we are. Uh, last minute or so. What are they to do? We know from other scripture, the elders are to be men who pray, they protect the flock, they protect it from false teaching, from false doctrine, from divisiveness, and they are to provide. A couple of observations. I, I had subpoints and examples under all of those, but another time, another place. Notice that twice in this passage we read that Satan is mentioned. Twice. He mentions the devil in connection with elders. Do you remember Rodney Dangerfield? I remember one time hearing him say that about his childhood, he said, oh, my childhood was rough. My parents loved my sister more than her, more than me. At Christmas, they gave her a BB gun, and they gave me a T-shirt with a bullseye on it. <laughs> you know what elders have? They've got bullseyes. Uh, they've, got, they've got targets on them because they're marked men by the devil. Because the devil knows if he can uh, destroy any of us in any kind of leadership, a whole lot of other people will be brought down with them. Uh, I've been on mission trips, short-term mission trips, and often during those we would gear up and organize prayer times here, and some of you would sign up and you would pray for those of us on these four- or five-day trips to, to Haiti or Cuba or even Eastern Europe. And I can remember from the time those things started I, I could have almost told you to the minute when people stopped praying. <laughs> there was just, there was a sense. There was a lack of courage. There was a lack of, of feeling strong in the Lord, of feeling protected from the evil one. Um, there's not a day go by that I'm not faced with decisions that I think, if I do this, how will that look on Christ's church? And we should all ask that in leadership. But also realize these men are under attack from the evil one. So to church officers, to those that are already elders or deacons, I would urge you, don't let this list discourage you. Don't call me this afternoon saying, I'm resigning, you know, this, I can't stand to look in the mirror at this, you know, these characteristics. No, give yourself afresh to these godly traits. And where you look at that and know I am not what's being described there, I'm not even in, in a baby steps what's described there, ask God to develop those resources in you. Here's the good news. Who is the perfect elder according to Scripture? The great shepherd is Jesus. Who was the deacon, i.e. servant? The great servant was Jesus. So when we lack resources to be elders and deacons, we don't turn to ourselves and say, well, I've just got to get smarter. I've just got to read more. I've just got to go to another seminar. We go to him, the great shepherd, the great servant, and he resources his church with that. He's the one. So men, do that. Look to him, and he will resource you to be the person that you aspire to be in his church. And last of all, to all of us, and I think 
when we talk about blessings and we have Thanksgiving services and people say what they're thankful for, do you realize what a blessing godly leadership is? Churches, the statistics will stagger you of, of how many churches close their doors in America each year, of all denominations, uh, all, all times. I never hear of that happening where there's strong leadership. And so if you don't know the blessing of godly leadership, just get in a church that has none, and it will show up in a hurry. What I'm trying to say is, if you read this list and you say, hey, that looks like old Joe, or that looks like Sam, he's this guy, I'm going to write his name down there. That is the blessing of God. Thank God for that, that he is raising up people to serve in that capacity, men to do so. Let's pray together. Father, you have created your church. You draw us to yourself, and you've designed it. You've given us a blueprint. And it's not our ideas or 500 years ago people thought up of the notion to have leadership within your flock, to have under-shepherds and under-deacons. So we pray that you would raise up and equip and resource and sustain leadership here. Give us guidance. And we pray and do thank you for the blessing of godly leadership. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.